0: If you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and turn there to Mark chapter 14. Mark 14, and we'll be looking at verses 53 through 72, so a pretty big chunk. Verses 53 through 72. Mark chapter 14. So, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the uh, just to remind you that the big bold number is the chapter number, and then the smaller numbers are the verse numbers. So, when I say Mark 14: 53 through 72, or when you hear Christians kind of talk like that, that's what we mean by that. Is look for the big bold number and then the little numbers, and that's that's that helps us to know where we're at in 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 the book of the Bible. So. So I'll read those verses for us, Mark chapter 14, verses 53 through 72. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another temple not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. And he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is God's word and it's entirely true and it's given to us in love. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so grateful for your word. We are grateful that we can, unlike our brothers and sisters across the world, sometimes cannot gather freely like this. And so um, let us not take this for granted that we can do this. And so, God, I pray that you would open our ears um, to behold wonderful and glorious things from your word this morning. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. So uh, Tara and I have been watching a documentary series on Netflix called The Innocence Files. You may, you may have seen it. Um, it, it features uh, this nonprofit organization call, it's called The Innocence Project, so, which is simply just a group of lawyers who have decided to, to forego the, the, the big bucks and work for the large law firms and instead use their skills to get innocent people out of jail. And that's what they spend their life doing. And it's actually a pretty emotional series as you watch these wrongly accused individuals uh, finally receive, well, first finally receive someone paying attention to them and willing to pursue justice on their behalf, and then actually get them, uh, see them freed from from prison. And oftentimes, this isn't just like a six months to a year prison sentence. Right? Sometimes it is seven years, fifteen years. 25 years innocently sitting in a prison cell with really no hope of getting out. And it's emotional because as you walk through the crime, you know it's clear the convicted person is innocent. And you're just left standing there going, how in the world did they miss this? They're so clearly innocent. And, and and you sit there and you're watching it and it just leaves you angry and saddened over a person's life just being disregarded in this way. And just sent off to prison because we need to check it off the box. Well, today in our text, we see a story that could be an episode on the innocence file. So we see a man who has been wrongly accused, betrayed by most everybody who knows him. He's uh, he's arrested, wrongly arrested. He's he has botched evidence and sloppy witnesses brought to his trial. But the only difference being is that Jesus carries it all the way through to the end. He doesn't fight for his justice. In fact, he doesn't do or even say anything so, I want us to look at this from two angles, because we have to do it because of, of of what we've just read. One is a rational verdict, and two is a regressive tragedy. So and the reason I want us to look at this from two different angles is because we have two stories happening in the same time span. So you have Jesus' trial that is happening uh, in one at in, in one one level, and then you have, Peter's denial happening. And both of those are happening parallel to one another. Both are happening like that. So the reason we know this is verse 54. If you notice that there, you have um, Mark here introducing what's the context of what is happening. Jesus is led to the high priest. Everybody's there. The chief priests are there. The elders are there. The scribes are there. Everybody who has been uh, chasing after Jesus to get this, to get to this particular point, or they're all there. And then Mark adds, and Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. So Mark is telling us, Peter's there. This is all happening at the exact same time. I think it's in John's Gospel. John actually just kind of interlaces all of the story together. So he, he, he talks about the trial, but he also talks about Peter's presence there and, what, and what's happening. And so Mark separates that for us. So here we, here we have Jesus being tried for crimes he didn't commit. And then at the same time, Peter committing the crimes, committing the sin... That Jesus is actually on trial for. So Peter represents us. We have to see ourselves in Peter this morning. And so it puts a verse like Romans chapter 5 verse 8 into perspective. Where Paul says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So let's look at our first angle now. I see the car here. So don't worry if you're getting awkward. I see it. I I know it's there. So just pushing through. okay? Um, so the first angle is a rational verdict in verses 53 through 65. Just so you know, the only way in which a rational verdict can be reached is not through a savvy lawyer asking the right questions. Or, present, or presenting precise evidence, or, or even calling expert witnesses. Because we see all of that fail in verses 55 through 59. So just look back there with me. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they found none. So they're out searching to say, we need somebody to testify against Jesus so that we can find him guilty. Mark tells us they found nobody, nobody was willing to do that because none of it was true. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. So, the only way that this verdict can be reached is through the continued work of Christ. That's the only way it can be reached. And the way we see it here in this particular point is, is, is in his continued work. One is in his silence, and the second way is in his proclamation about who he is. And both of these come straight from the Word of God. So, first is his silence. In verses 55 through uh, 56, we see that the intent of the religious leaders is to to try and build a foolproof case against Jesus. So if you you can remember back to Mark chapter 3, verse 6, this is what they've been scheming for a long time. It says the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus on how to destroy him. So they've been thinking about this for a long time. This, isn't, this wasn't on a whim. This is what they want to happen, and their plan is playing out to them perfectly until their witnesses open their mouths. Three times Mark records their failure to get their facts straight, and we can begin to see uh, the clear innocence of Jesus. And here's the opportunity, we're thinking, here's the opportunity for the defense to easily refute everything that has just been said, to bring in their own expert witnesses, to to recount everything Jesus said and did. The the same people that the Pharisees are looking for are the same people who have probably seen Jesus do His work and say what He has said throughout His three-year ministry on earth. They could have easily gone back to any number of, uh, of a thousand people, thousands of people have seen Jesus work, have heard Jesus teaching. They could have, uh, they could have brought in the paralytic from chapter 2 that Jesus heals. They, they could have brought in the man with the withered hand from chapter 3 that he heals him in the synagogue. That was a big deal. A lot of people present. Or the demon-possessed man from chapter 5. That's memorable. You don't forget that. Or or maybe uh, uh, Jairus. Remember him? He's a political uh, official, a military leader. His daughter is miraculously healed by Jesus. Surely he has some sway with the court. This is a perfect witness. Or just any number of the 9,000 plus people that Jesus feeds with just a few loaves and some fish. But what does Jesus do instead? Well, verse 61. He remains silent. And this phrase in the Greek is the same word Jesus used to calm the sea in Mark chapter 4, verse 39, when he said to the sea, the raging sea, peace, be still. And it just stops. So what this tells us is that uh, not only did Jesus not speak, Jesus doesn't make any grunts of disagreements. He he makes no sighs of annoyance at these false testimonies. He makes no eye rolls. He doesn't smirk as if he has something hidden behind the curtain that he's going to pull out. There's no head shaking. There's not even a hint of his innocence here. This was Isaiah 53, 7 coming to fruition that Malcolm read for us earlier. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. So he was falsely accused and wrongly convicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that, that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And what this means, this means Jesus will be be silent even when you expect him to make a noise. This is the this is the point in the documentary where you're just like, stand up, defend yourself. You're clearly innocent. But Isaiah says, like a a sheep being sheared is quiet. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a sheep being sheared. You can look it up on YouTube. I went down a rabbit hole um, this week for sermon research um of sheep being sheared and it's true they 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 do nothing they just take it and if you've ever seen it you know it's it's a rough act they're being thrown around and 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 their limbs kind of pulled apart and stretched out in every way and then they just like push them down a chute and they're done they make they make no sound it's actually really weird and kind of bizarre because you're expecting them just to be screaming out that's the picture that Isaiah is trying to give us here. That it's, it's almost bizarre and weird that Jesus doesn't make a sound. He doesn't say anything. And you wonder why. Why does he remain silent? He could have taken care of this. He could have called down the angels to, to stop this madness. He could have called his witnesses. But he does this for you. That's why he remains silent. And Jesus can't lie, so if he would speak up at this particular moment during these false testimonies, uh, he couldn't agree with them. He'd just have to say they're false. I mean, they're lying about me. So if he opens his mouth to defend himself, his innocence is proven easily and quickly. We've seen him do that throughout his ministry. When he's interacting with with these same religious leaders throughout his three years of walking on the, uh, the earth in his ministry, he is calling them out on their lies about him. He's telling them, look, your presuppositions about who the Christ is are wrong because I'm right here before you. So he's done it before. And if he were to open his mouth here, he could do it again. So in order for this part of the mission to be accomplished, silence is needed. Now, this obviously frustrates the court and prompts the high, a high priest to just ask the question that they probably should have asked first. And the question comes in verse 61. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Essentially, are you the son of God? Are you the Messiah? He wants a confession. To which Jesus now responds with his proclamation about who he is. And he simply says, I am. I am. So we've been asking this question in our in our in our Mark study through, throughout this throughout the year. Uh, who is Jesus? And so from the lips of Jesus, according to him, this is who he is. He is the Christ that has been talked about from the very beginning, and he is the Son of God. And he then makes the key statement in verse sixty-two. He says, I am. And then he goes on to say, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, I know uh, it doesn't seem like much to our ears, but that verse is is packed with biblical truth. So uh, it, 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 both are both present. Immediate, uh, both everybody present present there in that courtroom immediately recognized th- uh, these words from the Old Testament. So they immediately recognize he's he's quoting from Psalm 110 and he's quoting from Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. And both of these hold significant meaning about Jesus' identity, and everybody there knows it. So Psalm 110, verse 1 specifically, communicates the royal authority of God's vice regent. So this is someone who acts in the place of a ruler. This is someone who is, uh, is an equal with the king. This is, it reads like this. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So basically what Jesus is saying to the court is this verse is speaking about me. God is saying, I will sit at his right hand. I am his equal. So if that's not bad enough and condemning enough, Jesus goes a step further by referencing Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 that says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So Jesus is saying here to those gathered that rather than this council being his judge, that he is actually the judge of the final judgment at the end of days. Meaning, the verdict that they are seeking, that they want, is only reached if Jesus continues to submit himself to his Father's will. So we could say it like this that, that their judgment is only determined on Jesus' judgment upon himself by being obedient to his Father's will. It's the only way it happens. Because we have to understand that in order for Jesus to be condemned, all he needed to say at this point was, yes, I am, period. That's all he needed to do. But Jesus uses this as an opportunity to round, to round his answer out for them. He says, yes, you, you are correct, but let me just tell you what I mean when I say yes. We're meaning makers and so we'll, we'll take whatever that, that yes is and we'll make our own meaning out of it as we see these religious leaders do. But he, Jesus wants him to be clear and he wants us to be clear that he is not a political leader. He is not a military leader as some were expecting him to be. This is why a lot of them abandoned him at this moment in time. Because they knew, ooh, this is not who we expected. But this is God incarnate. Sent to save sinners. And Jesus wanted them to know that. Because the only way a rational verdict can be reached is if Jesus, God in the flesh, allows it. And judging from the reaction of the high priest in verses 62 and 63, where he's tearing his clothes, which is just a sign of mourning and distress, and he's screaming blasphemy, we know that Jesus has struck the right chord. The chord of death is what he struck. But the irony of this is that the authorities are condemning Jesus to death based on something they believe to be false. They don't believe for one second that Jesus is the Messiah. They don't believe at all that he is actually the Son of God. But what Jesus is truly being condemned by is demonstrated for us by Peter in our second point. And remember, Peter represents us. So as we observe his regressive tragedy in verses 66 through 72, keep that in mind. Because Peter is the one committing the true crime here. He's denying his friend. He's denying the Christ. He's denying his Savior. And because of this tragedy, I think it's very easy for us to try and disassociate ourselves from Peter. Much like we do with with Adam and Eve in the garden. We say, man, I would never have listened to the serpent. I never would have done that. We say a similar thing here. It's like, oh man, if, if, if I was there, I wouldn't have done that. There's no way I wouldn't have done that. I would not have betrayed Jesus. After everything I saw and everything I heard him, him teach, I would not have done that. Which just goes to show that we, we truly don't know ourselves, do we? And the only way in which we'll, we'll know ourselves is when we can understand what our heart is capable of. Thankfully, Peter does come to this understanding by the end of our text, but it's a brutal journey. Remember from verse 30 from last week, Jesus tells Peter directly and specifically, and I'm sure this stabbed him in the heart. Truly, I tell you, Peter, this very night, this very night, in just a few moments, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Once is bad enough, but three times in just a matter of minutes, Jesus says, that's what you will do, Peter. And Peter's overly dramatic response tells us he doesn't believe Jesus's words. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. So what can we learn from from this interaction? I think first uh, is to just... Avoid um, the temptation to not think so highly of ourselves that we refuse to believe or we allow that to blind us and so then we refuse to believe that we are worse than we could ever dare imagine I don't know if you've if, if you've I mean, you probably I hope so I hope you've seen Toy Story three if not something's wrong but If you remember in the the scene in Toy Story 3 when Buzz Lightyear has his uh, system turned back to his default by by Lotso and his gang. You guys remember that? But it is in his default setting that he goes back to what he was once before. Before he met his friends uh, in Andy's room. Before he met his savior Woody. Right? And he was changed. Well, the same is true for you and I. Our default is to go back to what we were once before we before we knew Christ, before we met Christ. That's your default. Even now, that is your default. Which is why we must also learn from this interaction to examine ourselves often. Which involves holding the current state of our life up to the lights of the gospel. Occasionally, I wear glasses, and so I, and it'll, they'll be kind of blurry at times, and you're not really even thinking about it, them being blurry. You just kind of get used to it. And it's, until I, it's not until I hold my glasses up to the light that I see they're smudged, Or they might have uh, scratches on them or whatever, and I have to clean them up and and fix them. And then I'm able to see clearly again. Well, that's the same thing we have to do with our own lives. We have to hold it up to the light, our current state of our life, up to the light of the gospel. Because I, I say current state because often we can live on past experiences and even worse on past feelings. So we think, well, I felt that way that one time ten years ago, and I don't feel that way now. Or I'm just going to ride on that feeling even though I don't feel that way now. And so we allow ourselves to believe that we're okay now based on that past feeling or that past uh, interaction that we had. When in reality, we're actually drowning This is why Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 12, to the Philippian church, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is why the elders of of churches are told multiple times in the New Testament to keep a close watch on the flock, to pay careful attention to the church. Over and over again we're told to do that. And it's because, one, the Christian life is individual individualistic. Okay. You're on your, you're on your own in a lot of ways. You're, you're pursuing God in it. personally, you know, you're having your daily quiet time, hopefully, and you typically do that by yourself. And so a lot of times we kind of get stuck in like, this is my, this is my belief. This is, this is, this is all about me. This is who I am. And so I'll pick a church based on how it makes me feel. And if they sing good music and if they get the lyrics right and their worship guide and all that stuff every week, um, but we forget that, that the Christian life mainly is corporate. It's mainly about a family. And you see that throughout the New Testament, that, that, that the church is mostly together. And this is why you, you had those feelings of longings during lockdown to gather again with the body. That, that's why you had those feelings, because God has made you to be in community. He has made you to gather Corporately, not to just be by yourself all the time. And the reason why that is a truth and why that is our reality is that so that we can, amongst other things, as a body, keep each other out of our default setting. To point out in each other's lives those smudges and those scratches that we are blind to. So back to Peter. Because we have to see what happens when he hears that final crow. Now, remember, if, if, you're, if you're new to, this, to our study of Mark, uh, Mark was not an eyewitness. Okay? Um, so Peter is actually relating his eyewitness account to Mark, and Mark is writing it down for him. Okay? So this is, this is Peter telling this story, recounting this story that is humiliating to him. And he's recounting this story to Mark. So this is Peter saying to Mark, When I heard that rooster crow for the second time and realized what I had just done, I broke down and wept. It was all I could do. I knew that I was wrong. So Peter came to the end of himself, we could say. He sinned in a way he probably thought was unforgivable. He was undone. And what does he do? But he weeps over his sin. Not a pity party. Not saying, "Oh woe is me." And uh, he's not blame shifting and saying, "Look, this was not my fault. These people were here. They scared me, you know. And they 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 forced me into this confession, you know, and made me deny my Savior." Uh, He he didn't blame it on his enneagram profile. He didn't say, "Look, I'm a seven. That's just how I. This is how things come out." Now Peter weeps over his sin. The Greek word here, word for the phrase breaking down and crying means to weep as a sign of pain and grief. Like those who would mourn for the dead. He was deeply, deeply broken. So Peter is, we could say, is found guilty before the court of his own hearts. And there is nothing on his own that he can do about it, except weep. But we know because we have the full scriptures that Peter is restored, that he goes on actually to become a pillar in the early church, and he preaches the gospel clearly and boldly, which should be an encouragement for us to to see some buffoon like Peter be able to go and lead the church. That God continues to use people like Peter and like us to do those things. But we also know how he got there. And it's through repentance. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7.9, he helps us with this. He says to the Corinthian church, As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved. Not because you kind of felt sorry for yourself. Not because you were just upset over your sin. But because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief. That's what Peter felt right here. He wasn't just grieved and feeling bad for himself. He was grieved into repenting. A godly grief. So Peter models this repentant life to us. That even in your foolish state... Even in your darkest hour where you are are weeping bitter tears over that sin that you just cannot get out of. You can repent and know that you are forgiven. And you know why? You know why you have that kind of confidence? It's because Jesus opened not his mouth so that you can be declared innocent and restored back to God. Amen. Let me pray for us.